Welcome to another inspiring message recorded at Rivers Church. Do we have any Beyonce fans in the house today? All the single ladies? All the single ladies. Previously part of Destiny's Child, Beyonce has sold 17.2 million albums. She's won 488 awards and has been nominated for 992. Any Justin Timberlake fans? Okay. Formerly part of NSYNC, I was a Backstreet Boys man myself, but anyways. He has sold 32 million albums, won 174 awards, and been nominated for 520. Any Diana Ross fans? Part of the Supremes previously, but she has, um, she has sold 100 million albums in her lifetime, is known as the most successful female singer of all time. Then I'm not sure if you've heard of this guy, Michael Jackson, anyone? 750 million albums he has sold, the king of pop and the most famous artist in all of history. Each of these four people have something in common. They reached epic success, but only after they separated from the bands that they were part of before. I'm sure that separation was quite painful. Uh, might have been quite a heart-wrenching thing. Very difficult conversations were had. There would have been disappointment, maybe cause for conflict and jealousy and strife. But that separation was necessary for these people to become the stars that were inside of them. You know, we so often hear messages about unity, and unity is important. We must never downplay the power and the importance of unity. Unity brought us up out of apartheid. Unity has brought us to where we are now as a church. Unity is a powerful thing that we must always work towards because it'll usher in the future for us as a church and as a nation. But we also need to understand the power of separation. As important as unity is, as, uh, separation is just as important. Separation away from the things that are small and things that hold us down. If we want to reach personal significance, if we want greater influence as a church and as a nation, if we want to live in harmony, we need to know what to separate from, when to separate, whom to separate from, and we need the courage to do it. If we want breakthrough in sin, addiction, and depression, we need to separate. If we want freedom from toxic relationships and painful histories and failure, we need to separate. If we want to step into the promises of God, His favor, the freedom of the Lord, our potential and joy, we need to separate. There's massive pain in separation, but only because it births massive blessing. I want to speak to you today about the blessing in separation. Now, for those of you facing marriage challenges, don't get excited. We're not talking about that kind of separation. Hold your horses and fight for your marriage because it's worth fighting for. The person in the Bible who's probably most familiar with the concept of separation is the patriarch Abraham. He's most known for the separation that we read in Genesis chapter 22, where God calls him to sacrifice his son Isaac. 
But he had many separations that come before that. We read his story from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 25. And I really want to encourage you, don't be the Christian or that person who comes to church over the weekend and gets your your Sunday dose of scripture from Pastor Andre and then that's it for the rest of the week until you get back the next weekend. Now we should all be going home. We should be having our own time with the Lord, being in the word ourselves, not getting secondhand revelation, but allowing God to speak to us. And I cannot encourage you enough to take the time this week to read Genesis chapter 12 to 25, the story of Abraham. You'll be encouraged, you'll be uplifted, you'll be excited. We're not gonna read all about it now because there's not enough time. So I'm gonna summarize the story, but I gotta tell you, this is like there is sex, there is drama, there is violence, there is betrayal, there is crazy things happening in this story. Don't watch Game of Thrones. This is so much better. There were a number of separations that Isaac, oh, that Abraham had to face. We start the story in Genesis chapter 12. Like I said, I'm going to summarize. God speaks to Abram. His name is Abram at the time, not Abraham, Abram. God speaks to Abram and says, I want you to leave your country and your kindred because I want, you to, I want to turn you into a great nation. And so Abram faithfully leaves his family, leaves his home country and sets out to where God was sending him to. He brings his wife along with him and his nephew Lot. Separation number one. Famine strikes the land, and to find refuge, Abraham and Sarai go to Egypt as a land of refuge. And while they get there, Abraham looks at his wife, and he recognizes that she has inherited all of the sexy genes from her mama. She is a good-looking woman. And he says, look, when the people see you, if they think that I'm your husband, they're going to kill me so that they can try get to you. So rather say that I am your brother, that way they'll try to, you know, they'll, they'll keep me alive. It wasn't a lie because Abraham and Sarai actually were brother and sister, same father, different mother. We're not going to go into that part of the story right now. But she did that. She said, this is my brother. Because of that, Pharaoh took an interest in Sarai and wanted to make her a part of his his harem. Pharaoh lavished gifts upon Abraham, made Abraham very wealthy, but then plagues came to Pharaoh's household because of what he was doing in stealing another man's wife. He recognized what was happening and sent him away. Separation number two. We see that Abraham and Lot both did very well. They were very wealthy. Their flocks grew, but the land couldn't sustain the both of them together. The herdsmen from Abraham and the herdsmen from Lot were also in conflict with each other, so they realized that they had to part ways. Lot saw a portion of land that looked good to him, so he chose to go move over there. The problem was that it was at the epicenter of immorality at the lands of Sodom and Gomorrah. He made a poor decision to go there, and he was constantly needing to be rescued from it. At separation number three, letting go of lot. A whole bunch of things happen that aren't relevant to the story, but then it gets a little bit saucy because God had promised Abraham that he would have a child of his own, but he was getting to like 86 years old. Nothing was happening. His wife was getting impatient, and she had with her a servant that they brought with from Egypt named Hagar. And so Sarah said to Abraham, well, why don't you take Hagar? You can have her as a wife. You can sleep with her and have a child, and then we can have our child together. Well, Abraham resisted in no way, shape, or form. He was very excited excited about the plan. Hagar got pregnant. There was animosity and strife between Hagar and Sarah because Hagar could fall pregnant, but Sarah could not. And so there was a whole bunch of conflict happening over there. And then we see that we get to another point where um, the, the child Ishmael was born. After Ishmael was born, fast forward a number of years, Abraham is now 99 years old. 
God reaffirms the promise that he gave to Abraham. He promises him again, you will have a child of your own. He changes Abram's name to Abraham. He changes Sarah's name to Sarah. And at the same time, he institutes the covenant of circumcision, separation number four. Well, soon after that, as the children are growing up, Ishmael is causing issues. I told you that there's drama in this story. You need to read it for yourself. Ishmael is causing issues for Isaac. Sarai doesn't like this. She tells Abraham to send Ishmael away. Separation number five, saying goodbye to the first son. And then one day, God speaks to Abraham. He says, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says, here I am. God says, I want you to sacrifice Isaac the son of promise, I want you to give him up because I want to know that you're faithful. Early the next morning, Abraham gets up, takes Isaac with him. They go to the top of the mountain. Abraham binds Isaac up, lays him on an altar and is about to kill his son, the son of the promise. And God says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. Don't touch the boy. Now I know you will withhold nothing from me. And out of that, Abraham declares Jehovah Jireh, God, my provider, sees an aspect of God's character that nobody had seen before in a beautiful show of the blessing as he was willing to separate. Each one of these six separations represents something in our lives that we need to be willing to separate from. Country and kindred represents comfort, peace, security, home, familiarity. There are many times in life where we need to be willing to let go of what is comfortable if we want to step into what God has for our lives. Egypt represents a place of refuge that became a place of bondage. They went there initially to find refuge, but they were bound over there. Abraham was getting his wife taken away, and we see in the future as well, the, um, the Israelite family, they went there for refuge in a time of famine as well, but that's when the Israelites became slaves in Egypt. We all have our own Egypt, places and people that we run to that are comfortable, that, that, that give us a sense of refuge, but in, t- in the end, they, they leave us bound, they lead us tied down to something, and maybe it's a person, maybe it's that, that guy that is just always there to receive you, but you know that it's a toxic relationship. Maybe it's, it's clicking online to pornography. Maybe it's drugs. Whatever it is, we've all had our Egypt in our lives. We see the next separation is Lot. Lot represents small people, small-minded people. Whenever Lot was in trouble, he wanted to escape to a small village. There are people in our lives who are small. They think small, they behave small, they talk small, and they want to keep us small. And we need to be willing to separate from small people if we want to step into the blessing that God has for us. The next separation was circumcision, the separation of the flesh, fleshly passions, fleshly desires, the sin that we love to engage with because it's just that yummy and that entertaining. There's something about our flesh that we need to be willing to let go of. And then Ishmael, he represents our human efforts to earn grace, our human efforts to try and make the promise of God happen, represents our failures. We need to be able to separate our lives from that. And then finally, Isaac, we need to be able to separate ourselves from our Isaacs as well because the blessing of God, the promise of God can become a God to us instead of worshiping the God of the promise. And God wants to know that we're not just gonna live for what he can give us, but we're going to live for him. There are many times in our lives that we need to be able to separate. I wonder what's happening in your world, what God is speaking to you about today, things that you need to be able to separate from. Attitudes, 
Toxic relationships, habits, thinking, behavior patterns, mistakes, faults, even a dream. If we pick up the kind of behavior that Abraham had, we would be able to separate cleanly from these things in our lives and enjoy the blessing of separation. I'm going to share with you five points today. Is everyone doing okay? Fantastic. If we want to be able to encounter the blessing of separation, point number one, we need to pitch tents and build altars. Don't build tents and pitch altars. There's been a fair bit of teaching around this already. In fact, Pastor Adi from our Belito campus did a message along these lines, but it bears repeating. Nowhere in the scriptures do we ever read an account of, God, of Abraham building a dwelling for himself. However, four times we read that he built an altar. He built an altar of praise, an altar of prayer, an altar of peace, and an altar of provision. He was an expert altar builder. A pitched tent says, I'm not going to stay here. I might be here for now, but this is not where I will remain. I will move forward from where I am. A built altar says, I will return here. I'll return to my praise. I'll return to my prayer. I'll return to the peace of God. I'll return to knowing that he is my provider. I will return to my place of worship, and I won't be moved from there. We've got it switched around. See, we spend our lives building our tents and pitching our altars if it becomes convenient. We are so good at at just coming to church over the weekend and flirting with the presence of God and saying, oh, this is wonderful, but then kind of going out and, and, and not making any difference in the world around us, not having allowed God to make a difference inside of us. We're so consumed with building our lives and building our careers and, and getting this and getting that and the new car, the new house. We're building our lives and adorning it with accessories of God's presence. But we should be building our lives on God's presence and accessorizing it with things every now and then. We must not build our tents. We must build our altars because we always return to what we build. If you have built your life on insecurity, you'll always return to insecurity. If you've built your life on people's perceptions of you, you'll always return there to get your affirmation. If you've built your life on your failure or built your life on mistakes or built your life on material things, you will always return there, but you'll never go beyond there. That's why we need to pitch our tents, understand that we're living in a transient world, but build our altars and always return to worship the Lord. Radical worship is actually terrifying. Because radical worship says that we will give the Lord access to the most diabolical, shameful, horrible parts of our lives. And we've all got them. And we say to him, Lord, you can do whatever you want to do. Radical worship allows God access into the most intimate parts of who we are. So I ask you now, what are you building your life on? Are you building a tent or are you building an altar? Are you building your life around attending church, coming to church over the weekends? Are you building your life around reading the Word of God at home? Are you reading your Bible to the point that your Bible is reading you, where the Bible is a mirror that's holding up in front of your face and you are engaging with what the Word of God says? If you get a promotion, maybe you're moving to another city or another area, are you jumping into that and kind of thinking, okay, we'll see what other churches are around there? Or are you saying, well, let me know what churches are around there, just if I'm going to have a solid church base before I make this decision. That's building your life. When it, are you building your finances around your worship? 
Or you're kind of slotting in an offering every now and then thinking, well, maybe I can do this. Maybe, maybe I should give everything now and then. Or are you building your life around the altar of worshiping God with your finances? Miracle offering is coming up in a couple weeks' time. Have you even thought about what you want to give? Have you considered how much you're willing to sacrifice in your worship to the Lord? You see, if we build our lives on our altars, if we build on worship, we're giving God the perfect opportunity to tell us exactly what we do need to separate from, and we're giving Him the opportunity to imbue us with the courage that we need to actually make this decision to separate. But if we keep on going through life so focused on building our tents and not pitching our tents, building our life, building our wealth, building our finances, well, then we'll never take the courage to step away from the things that we need to separate from because we will be far too comfortable in our country and our kindred. Point number two, is everyone still doing okay? It's getting a little bit quiet in this Presbyterian church. I promise it's going to get much, much worse. Point number two, live up to your new name. Live up to your new name. It's interesting when we read about the change of name for Abraham and Sarah. Abram's is a little bit easier to understand. Sarah's is a little bit more of a nuance, but Abram goes from Abram, which means the exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. I've got to be honest. I would rather be the exalted father than the father of a multitude. I've got two kids, and they are a handful enough. Any more, and I think I might explode. But there's purpose in being changed from exalted father to father of a multitude. God is saying, I don't want you to be known for your honor. I want you to be known for your function. You mustn't just sit in life, just enjoying life, everyone praising you for who you are. No, there's a job to be done. There are people to be influenced. There's, there's something that you need to impart into other people's lives. So you'll be known as a father of multitudes. With Sarah, it's a little bit more subtle. She goes from Sarai, which means my princess, to Sarah, which just means princess. Now, every father of a little girl has invariably called their daughter, oh, my princess. My, you know, when they're saying that, you're not saying you are a real princess, you're saying, in my world, you're royalty. You are noticed, you are loved, you are cherished, you are adored, you are a princess in my world. I want to go give my daughter a hug right now. <laughs> but there's a difference between being called my princess and just princess. I love watching the progress and the, the movements of the royal family in the UK. And I loved watching the weddings of Meghan Markle to Harry and Kate Middleton to, to William. When Kate Middleton got married to William, she went from being her daddy's little princess to suddenly now being a real princess. A real princess has authority. She is an ambassador. She has influence. She has power. She's elevated above the standard of the rest of the common society. There's something different about having the title of princess. Now, when it comes to you and me, we are no longer just daddy's little princess. We've all been given a brand new name, and that name comes with it power and authority and influence and royalty. We are now ambassadors of a greater household. That means that we need to live to a different standard and live by a different expectation. 
Pastor Vilma mentioned to me earlier today that the name Abraham and Sarah both have imbued in their names a portion of God's name. Abram to Abraham, Sarai to Sarah. They have a portion of Yahweh, God's name in it. When we are given a new name by God, a part of who he is is put inside of who we are. That means that we cannot continue life behaving the way we used to live, talking the way we used to live, acting the way we used to live. When Megan and Kate became princesses, they stepped into a world of royal protocol. They could no longer say things that they used to say. They're like, I'm a princess now. I can't say, I I don't say things like that. I'm a princess now. I don't behave like that. I'm a princess now. I don't hang out with people like that. I'm a princess now. I do things different. I feel weird saying I'm a princess so many times. (laughs) When we become children of God, we say, no, I am royalty. There's a way of life that I used to engage in, a way of thinking, a way of talking. But if I'm going to live up to this new name, it means I'm going to separate from the old way of life to step into the newness that God has given to me. I don't just carry for myself my own name, my own family. I carry for myself the name of God, my Father. I am His ambassador in this world. So I'm no longer going to live like that. I'm going to live up to my new name. And for us to be separated from the past, to be separated from things that lay behind us, our failures or things that were done to us, so often we feel that we need to delve into why those things happened. Why am I the way that I am? Why do I act the way that I act? Why do I choose things the way I choose things? And and while there certainly is benefit in understanding why we do things a certain way, sometimes we'll never get that understanding. Sometimes we'll never get that closure. And either way, whether we understand what happened to us or not, we're still left with the same decision. What are you going to do about it? And so we shouldn't spend all of our time saying, well, why did this happen? Why was I hurt? Why was I abused? Why did this happen to me in this kind of a way? No, just decide, well, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to do differently from this day forward? I'm going to live up to my new name. And the new names that God has given to us is that you are redeemed. So stop behaving like you're the prodigal. Stop living with the pigs where God has given you access to the palace. You are saved. So stop acting lost. Act like you are saved, like you are a saved, redeemed child of God. You are forgiven. So stop hanging around with your shoulders bent over, worrying and commiserating about how bad you are. No, you are forgiven. So step into your freedom and away from your guilt. Separate from your guilt. You are healed. So constantly stir expectation. Change your lifestyle. Stop eating 15 packets of McDonald's chips every single day and act as if you are healed. We need to change our behavior, change our response, and live up to the new name that has been given to us. Point number three. We need to look ahead to the promise and don't manufacture it. Look ahead to the promise and don't manufacture it. Am I the only one who ever feels like I need to play the PA to God so that he can be a better PA to me. Lord, I just want to remind you that we're not quite on schedule from where I expected us to be right now. So if you wouldn't mind, just just consider maybe just try working that way. Think about doing things this way because we're not where we should be right now. Thank you very much. Bless you. We praise your name, O King of Kings. You know, we get so caught up in life with, with, um, with trying to make things happen and trying to force things to get, where, to get to a certain place. We get very impatient with the Lord, don't we? 
recently went on a road trip with my children. It was torture in the car. Because every five minutes, the same question comes up. Are we there yet? No. Another five minutes. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. How much longer now? Two minutes shorter than when you asked me two minutes ago. <laughs> and that's just a trip to pick and pay. <laughs> we do the same thing with God. Lord, are we there yet? God. Lord, come on. Are we there? God, I'm, I'm bored. God, I, come on. How long is it going to take? Meanwhile, God's saying, my child, I'm driving. It's a process. It's a journey. Just be patient. We're going to get there eventually. Just sit back. I know what I'm doing. How many ladies have been in church saying, Lord, please, I pray, you'd give me a godly man who's plugged into church? A week later, Lord, just give me a man, just a godly man. It doesn't take long before the prayers, Lord, if it has two legs in a bank account, it's fine. <laughs> so often we get caught up in our own impatience that we feel like we need to hurry things along for the Lord. So many women feel so pressured by their parents to produce a grandchild that they'll just jump into a clinic and get in vitro fertilization just to appease their parents. They know that there's a promise for marriage and a promise for family, but it's just taking too long, Lord. I mean, come on, can you be serious? Obviously, if you are married and you're battling to fall pregnant, go get checked out. If your body's not working the way it needs to, do the in vitro fertilization. It's fine. There's no condemnation in that. It's, it's about trying to preempt before marriage comes in, trying to step outside of God's will to force his blessing upon your life. That's when it's an issue. Whenever we try to manufacture the promises of God in our lives, the only thing that we're doing is creating for ourselves something else that we need to separate from. Abraham grew impatient. Sarai was impatient. And because of that, they tried to make the blessing of God happen. But all that happened was that they created something else to separate from. And we're very quick to quote to the Lord, but God, you told me that you will give me the desires of my heart. Well, it doesn't give us permission to make it happen in any way that we want. Bearing in mind that it's actually not strictly accurate to say that God is always going to give you the desires of your heart because it's not the full scripture. Let's read what the verse actually says. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. To delight yourself in the Lord means to find such joy and fulfillment in the Lord yourself. Not just coming to church and feeling a tingling in your giblets from the Holy Spirit happiness that happens during worship, but engaging with the Lord in a way where He works in you, where He performs surgery on your soul, delighting yourself in the Lord where you know what His Word is, you know what it says, you're convicted about it, and you're willing to carry it out in the world. When you get so much joy out of living in the perfect will of God, no matter how many things you need to separate from, and no matter how many people you disappoint and the expectations of other people that you disappoint, saying, I'm going to hold true to what the Word of God says then you have delighted yourself in the Lord. And if you haven't been satisfied enough by that, because you probably are satisfied already, then God will give you the desires of your heart. But to stand before the Lord and say, well, your Bible says you'll give me whatever I want, well, that's actually a form of manipulation, and God doesn't get manipulated. If we delight ourselves in Him, if we rest in patience with Him, if we have our eyes fixed on the vision of the promise, 
then we'll see it come to pass no matter how long it takes. And I pray it doesn't take too long for you. But if there's a process, God's doing something, so hold on. But hold on to the promise. Do you know what the Word of God says for your life, for your future, for your marriage? Do you hold on to the promise that He has for your future? Well, you should keep that in your sight. And whenever something comes your way that says, oh, well, don't you want to try this? And say, no, no, I'm separating from that thought. No, I, no, I don't want to do that because I'm holding out for the promise. If some guy comes your way and he's all sexy and suave and, you know, he's got all the right things, but he doesn't have Jesus. No, no, I'm separating from you, bro. I've got a greater vision that I'm holding on to. If some saucy minx comes your way saying, hey, no, 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 I'm separating from that. I'm holding on for a virtuous woman. I'm holding on for somebody who's plugged into the Word of God, somebody who's going to help me and encourage me. No, I'm willing to separate because I've got a vision for what the future holds for me. This is why it's important for us not to manufacture the blessing of God in our lives because we just create distractions, but to keep a vision for the promise. Point number two, this is where it's going to get quiet. Point number four. Now it's going to get quiet. <laughs> Cut quickly. Cut quickly. Gentlemen, it's going to get real. I wish I was there on the day that God instituted circumcision with Abraham. I can just picture him. Lord, you want me to cut what? <laughs> From where? It must have been the most stressful point in his entire life. And I, I don't want to be crass over here, but you know, when it came to actually doing it, I don't think Abraham took his time. I don't think he had a little cut and then said, okay, cool, well, let's come back tomorrow and let's see how it goes. And there wasn't like a little nick and saying, okay, let's try a little bit more next week. He didn't do it over an hour. No, it was a cut. It was a slice. It was getting it over and done with. When there are things in our lives that we need to separate from, we shouldn't just say, okay, let me just get a little, little bit now, let's cut a little bit off now. No, there needs to be a slicing away, a sharp, clean cut so that we can step away. <laughs> the biggest reason for circumcision, especially back in those days, was probably for hygiene. So that at the tool that is used for intimacy and reproduction, there was cleanness. In our lives, God wants the tool of reproduction in our hearts to remain clean. Because circumcision was never only ever pointing towards just a physical show. It was pointing towards something far deeper. It says in Deuteronomy 10 verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4 verse 4, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. The concept of, uh, of circumcision isn't about a physical act. It's about a spiritual cutting away of what is unnecessary that we might remain clean and pure and separate, not caught up in things, not worrying about treating infection, keeping things clean, but we're simply cutting things away that we do not need in this life. So what is reproduced in our children, in the people around us, is righteous and good and pure. We need to be willing to cut away aspects of the flesh so that we can step into what God has for us. And this is the reason why the woman is walking across a knife in the bridge. We need to be willing to cut things away, separate things from our lives. It might be for you a relationship. 
There might be a toxic relationship that you, you just need to have a clean cut away. It might even be a family member. Now, I'm not saying that you need to just disown this person forever and ever and never see them again. It's simply acknowledging, I can't do this journey closely with you anymore. When it came to separating from Lot in the Bible, Lot got himself into trouble a lot. After <laughs> he got into trouble a lot after he separated from Abraham. And who was there for him every time when he got into trouble? Abraham. Abraham always stepped onto the scene to help him. Abraham was still there for him, still helped him, but they just couldn't do the intimate journey together. There's some relationships, some family members where you will always be there for them. You might provide for them. You might give money. You might step in to help occasionally, but you just cannot do the journey because your values are so misaligned. There needs to be a separation. If you're battling things like pornography or alcoholism, there needs to be a clear separation. Don't kid yourself saying, no, I've got this under control. I can have a browser on my phone. No, do a clean cut. Remove everything around your world that is causing you to sin. Just cut it out. People that are causing you to drink too much, cut them out. Mistakes that are made that you return to that cause you to feel depressed and want to take medication, cut them out. We need to have a clean cut if we want to separate. Cut quickly. Don't just do a little bit over here and say, okay, well, let me try a little bit again later on. No, the pain will overwhelm you and you'll won't want to do it in the end. Have one sharp, clean cut. The best advice, if you're going to chop off a finger, do it once. Don't cut here and here and here and here and here and here. Just cut it off once. You'll be much more happy for it. I read a story about a man in the 1930s. His name was Easy Eddie O'Hare. And he was a businessman who found him in business dealings with Al Capone. His dealings with Al Capone were obviously notorious. Al Capone was a crime boss. Lots of illegal business, uh, money laundering, things like that. But Easy Eddie had a son named Eddie as well, and he wanted his son to go up in the world. And he didn't want his own illegal dealings to interfere with his son's potential. And so Easy Eddie one day made a decision to hand over the documents that proved that Al Capone was fraudulent over to the IRS. And because of that, Al Capone was arrested and put in jail for about six years. Within a year, Easy Eddie was shot and killed out of revenge. I hope you feel encouraged that if you do the right thing, you will die. <laughs> His son, Eddie, had joined the Air Force, having fully known what his father had done. In the middle of World War II, Butch O'Hare was in the air, and Japanese fighters were approaching, long story short. There wasn't enough time for backup to get to him. And instead of fleeing away from these seven Japanese fighters, he thought, I'm going to take as many people down with me as I can. So he single-handedly took down five of those fighter jets. Because of that, um, uh, uh, thought all over the place again in the service. Because he was able to fight off five of the jets, backups could come to him, and he was able to save so many people's lives because of his courage. He was willing to recklessly throw his life away for the sake of other people. Sounds a little bit like what dad did. You see, dad gave the example that if you're going to cut something out, cut it quickly. If it's going to save you or save your family, cut it quickly. If it hurts, if it's going to cause pain or challenges, just cut it quickly because the results are far greater. Do you know O'Hare Airport in Chicago? Named after this fighter pilot who saw the example of his father, who was willing to cut things out quickly. Whatever it is in your life, cut it quickly. Point number five as we come to a close. 
If we want the blessing of separation, we need to respond hineni. Respond hineni. There's a particular phrase that's a significant phrase that's only used a, a handful of times in the Old Testament. When God had spoken to Abraham, or rather in Genesis chapter 22, God spoke to Abraham. God called him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham said, here I am. God was about to ask him to do the most difficult thing, to sacrifice his son. He'd given up and given up and given up and given up. And here comes God again. We read that phrase as well in Genesis chapter, or Exodus chapter 3. It says, when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush saying, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. We see it again in Isaiah before God called Isaiah to be a prophet. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am. Send me. The word here I am is the word hineni. And the word doesn't mean simply, I'm here, I'm present. Like when you go to school and they call out your name, you have to say present to be ticked off the roll call. No, it means I don't know what you're about to ask me. I don't know what it is that you're going to tell me to do. I'm not sure what lies on the other side of me saying, here I am, but I implicitly trust you and I'm so submitted and surrendered to your will that whatever it is that you ask of me, I will do it. So on that basis, Lord, I say, here I am. Abraham didn't know that the next thing that God was going to ask him to do was to sacrifice his son. When, when Moses said, Lord Hineni, here I am, he didn't know that the next thing God was going to ask him to do was to lead the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt for 400 years into the wilderness for 40 years in a painful, painful journey. When Isaiah said, Hineni, here I am, he didn't know that God was going to call him to, to be a prophet to the nations, to do radical things as a person and as a, as a preacher, a difficult journey that he had. Whenever we see the word Hineni in the Old Testament, almost immediately, the person who has said it is plunged into difficulty and pain. Even Joseph, when his father called him to send a message to his, son, uh, to, to his brothers, Joseph said, Hineni. But the very next thing that happened was he got sold into slavery and sold into part of his household. Whenever we say Hineni, it's a massive risk. A massive risk because we don't know what it is that God's going to ask us to do. But Abraham would never have known Jehovah Jireh, God my provider, if he wasn't willing to first put his son on the altar. The Israelites would never have been freed out of slavery if it weren't for Moses saying, Lord, I'm here. I don't know what's going to be. Joseph would never have become the savior of the world in a time of crazy famine if he hadn't been to the slave, to the pit, before getting to the palace. Whenever we say Hineni, God might call us into something difficult, but it's only to take us to something far, far greater. And when we say Hineni, we say, Lord, I will separate whatever it is that you need me to separate from so I can step into the blessing that you have for me. So when it comes to your marriage, your wife doesn't need another expensive Cartier gift. She simply needs you to say to the Lord, Hineni, I'm willing to separate myself from the things that have brought us to where we are in our marriage so we can get better again. Your children don't need another expensive holiday to Europe. They need you to say, 
Hineni. Here I am to acknowledge that I've been absent and I've been distant as a parent, but I'm now going to be present and do whatever it is to separate myself from what has been taking my focus away so I can raise godly children. Your business doesn't need you to say, oh, we need to get somebody else in to, to repair things because things are terrible employees. No, your company just needs you to say, Hineni. Here I am to acknowledge that I've been mismanaging my money. I'm going to separate myself from that so I can step into something greater. If we respond, Hineni, we're saying, Lord, take what you want, and I will separate what I need so I can step into the future that you have for me. So again, I wonder what it is that you're facing in your world, what things you might need to separate from, people, relationships, behaviors, addictions, thought processes, words, places that you go to, so you can step into the blessing that comes from your separation. We hope you have been blessed and inspired by this message. 